iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Yo, technology, what is it all about? The internet now I just see is much more re- reflective of the real world than we, we saw it or we imagined it. 20 years ago when it was this very nascent quirky little thing where it didn't have the problems of the real world because it didn't have all the people of the world. That voice you just heard was Ev Williams, the billionaire co-founder of Twitter. I sat down with him last week to tape this episode of Danny in the Valley, but our interview happened the day before Twitter had some pretty big news. And I'm not talking about its decision to potentially up the limit for tweets from 140 to 280 characters. The company gave evidence in a closed-door session of the Senate Intelligence Committee, which is looking into how Russian operatives use social media to influence the 2016 presidential election. Twitter said it has frozen 200 Russia-linked accounts, but Mark Warner, the ranking Democrat on the committee, slammed the company, calling its presentation deeply disappointing. To quote him, Twitter showed an enormous lack of understanding about how serious this issue is and the threat it poses to democratic institutions. That public dressing down perfectly tees up the conversation I had with Williams, who's been working on this idea of online publishing and idea sharing since the late 90s, when he launched his first company, Blogger, one of the first blogging platforms. Of course, he also started Twitter, where he is no longer involved in the day-to-day operations, but remains on the board of directors and is its largest shareholder. His day job now is Medium, an online publisher that he launched five years ago to fix what he called the broken media. It was at Medium's office, just a few blocks from Twitter in downtown San Francisco, where I met with him last week. We had a fascinating chat about where the internet has gone wrong, trolls, why it's so hard to turn a profit from content, unless you're Facebook or Google, and how the future of journalism online may depend on a quirky idea. Clapping. Yes, digital applause. Anyhow, I will let him explain. So without further ado, here's Ev. I'd be remiss if I didn't start with the obvious these are momentous times. 280 characters. Yeah, I'm stoked. Long time coming. I feel personally very excited about this. That's good. A lot of people are upset, which I understand. Which is interesting. Do you have any sense of why that is? I mean, 140 characters always felt so limiting to me. I think there's a natural sense that the brevity and the constraint is where the beauty is, which is certainly something that we always believed there was a lot of power there. We did the 140 character constraint was for the fairly arbitrary reason to, to fit it in, into text messages. But then we were surprised that there was all this power to that constraint. 
And I think people associate the constraint with the power. Personally, I don't think 140 is a magic number. There's a lot of science and study that went that the team did. That number, and it's still fairly constrained. So obviously more expressive and more powerful. One way to kind of frame all of this is because you've been at this online publishing thing for a long time, longer mm-hmm. than most, since way back in 1999, mm-hmm. longer. But I was uh, just looking through the lens of Twitter, and then we can talk about what you're doing now at Medium. I mean, there's this idea that at the start of the internet, it was this great world-changing thing that was going to all kind of allow us to share ideas, and it's done that, but it's also become this instrument to amplify the kind of darker side of things. Sitting here today, when you look at, say, Twitter, which has become like the megaphone of Donald Trump and lots of trolls, et cetera, does that, do you find that disconcerting? The way I look at it now as opposed to, say, 15, 20 years ago when we were starting down this journey. And when when I say we, I mean those few of us who were excited about the potential of the internet then and started building and enabling these ideas. It's just more complicated than we realized. There's a lot of emphasis on the negative side and the, the abuse and the misinformation, all kinds of things that are obviously not ideal. But it's important to have perspective and say that, you know what, there's incredible amazing things that that are still true the positive side that we don't talk about because we take those for granted now but it's not perfect the internet now i just see is much more reflective of the real world than we we saw it or we imagined it 20 years ago when it was this very nascent quirky little thing where it didn't have the problems of the real world because it didn't have all the people of the world and you know it's still a niche thing kind it was of. very niche and when things are small they're manageable and when there's bad actors that you know they don't get the momentum when there's a person with terrible ideas that wouldn't be accepted in their community they couldn't find the thousand other people in the world who shared those ideas and then they felt empowered by each other with the veil of anonymity and the, the networks were also less connected and less immediate so there wasn't the opportunity potential for abuse and they didn't have the impact on what people read and believed and how they voted. And so now that everything is so intertwined, I think it's very obvious that while I still believe in the positive side of connecting people and enabling more people to share their thoughts, oops, also there's all these problems. (laughs) Let's work on those problems. Did you ever envision that this could become such an instrument of presidential power it wasn't wasn't in our design doc that wasn't in your decks no no (laughs) we weren't uh on the other hand i was working on blogger in when would the yeah little 2000 was a presidential election but then 2002 was an election year and we, we that was when candidates started using blogging and it was a direct to the people medium. And then with 9-11, that was sort of the eruption of political blogging that birthed many careers and tons of discourse and took that form from a what was seen as personal and or techie field to something more political, more mainstream. Twitter is just one form of the same phenomenon of the the direct communication power of the internet and all the implications of that. 
So before we get to Medium, I think it would be worth just because a lot of our listeners are overseas to give a kind of quick potted history of what you did before Medium, which you started sure. in 2012. So you started Blogger in 1999, is that right? Yeah. After you dropped out of I, University of Yeah, University. a few years after I dropped out right. of, of university. And I, I kind of bounced around here in Silicon Valley. And then, yeah, I started Blogger in 1999, worked on it for four years, and then sold that to Google in 2003 and worked on Blogger there for a couple of years. And then I left there and I helped start a company called Odeo, which was an ill-fated, very early podcasting company. It was very early days of podcasting and, you know, we imagined the future that we now have of this myriad options for new audio content, but none of it wasn't built into iTunes yet. Right. And so people still complain about the discovery of podcasts, but there was really nothing then. So we were trying to solve that problem as well as helping creators of podcasts. So we, what we envisioned was not terribly unlike medium or lots of other content platforms, but for podcasts, two things happened. One, it was really, really early. So it was before the iPhone podcasts originally came from the iPod. And the idea was you would connect the iPod to your computer, you'd download some podcasts, and then you'd walk around and listen to them. That was a lot of friction to actually get them onto the iPod, although it was possible. So part of Odeo was there was software you installed on your computer that would connect to iTunes, and, get, and so it was complicated. And then actually surprisingly early, much to our chagrin, Apple embraced podcasts. And that same year, 2005, they built podcasts into iTunes. They eliminated our major advantage that we were trying to solve. And so, and it was still super early. No one was really listening to podcasts yet. Right. So that wasn't exactly a rocket ship. And that's when we started thinking about what else could we do? And um, we were thinking about new things. And that's where we started Twitter. The background of Twitter has been much written about lots of comings and goings and who was CEO, et cetera. You were CEO for a while, then you left and you started this in 2012. What's the big idea of Medium? So the big idea of Medium is essentially very similar to the the ideas of Blogger and Twitter. I mean, it was, it's similar in the sense that it's another platform for allowing people to put thoughts and ideas out into the world. There's a different motivation. With Blogger and then Twitter, the main problem we were trying to address was simply the internet promised the ability for everybody to have a voice and put their thoughts out there. It was still hard though. And so Blogger made it easy to set up a website and update that website in the form of a blog. Twitter made it an order of magnitude easier by eliminating the need to set anything up, eliminating the need to write much. You know, it was very, it was all about speed. At that point in 2012, after I left Twitter, I was thinking about the future and the state of the world. And one thing that was obvious was we had solved the problem of making it easy to put ideas out into the world. It was fairly momentous and we take for granted, again, even back then, the idea of if I have a thought, I can put it out into the world. If I have internet access and and all that, that's now easy. But it was clear at the time that that didn't make everything automatically better. We could build on top of that. And so the question with Medium was really, how do we make things better? I was reading before I came over here. When you set set it up, you had a very pithy and pointed way of saying 
kind of why you were doing this. Mm-hmm. Saying basically, it's as an alternative to what you called quote the highly optimized algorithm chum being slung by the truckload by low cost content purveyors. <laughs> yeah, that's a <laughs> that's one way to put it. It was clear to me before anyone was talking about fake news and misinformation that the systems that were driving the creation and distribution of content online were having a detrimental effect on the quality of the information we were consuming, at least on the commercial side. I look at problems as systems and what what are the incentives and feedback loops that are driving behavior. What the internet had optimized for and and taught people who are putting information out there, especially if they're trying to make money, but even if they were just trying to have influence and get attention, was that quantity trumped quality. And attention was the goal, and attention was rewarded, and all attention was equal. It doesn't matter if it was you're making someone angry or or you're enlightening someone. Right attention was rewarded and you got more of it if you figured out how to do that in a high quantity and low cost. Which is why cat videos do better than a 10,000 word investigative piece on subject X. Usually, at least for the effort. And so that seemed like that really undermined the promise of the internet, that it, it makes us all smarter and more enlightened and increases the understanding. And it didn't seem necessary. If we built better systems and changed the incentives, we could change the direction of that trend. That was the motivation to start Medium. So initially, it was just a platform kind of let a thousand voices bloom. And then you tried to start with an ad-based model or a subscription and ads? or Because ha- you've had a couple pivots since then in terms of how you're trying to kind of create we, the business. We haven't, we've had one pivot of business model. We've always been trying to do the same thing, which is we build a platform where anyone can publish as individuals or organizations for commercial and non-commercial purposes. And the, the goal has been, and what we've succeeded in doing is building a network. So if you publish on Medium, unlike a standalone website, you can tap into readers on Medium and you can build a following and you can reach an audience. And it's that network that is really the value and this is where it's like twitter and and other things where you can build a network and build a following the difference is you can do it with more substantive content it's not social media that was the initial plan then as we started to move into professional content we at first were working with brands to do native content and and sponsored content in order to fund the creation of professional content and that's what we decided to that's what we were doing a year ago bringing on big brands like the ringer etc to kind of well there are two types of brands we're bringing on commercial publishers like bill simmons the ringer and then we were we were working with them as well as big brands like bmw and intel and samsung and g to do like um, advertorial to do kind of yeah sponsor content native native content so it was never traditional web ads but it was brand-based publishing. At the beginning of this year in 2017, we decided that wasn't the best path, so we we stopped doing that, and we, in March, launched a consumer subscription business instead. Yeah, so I think it was in January, you had to lay off some people and close a couple offices in DC and New York, et cetera. March, you launched subscription? March, we launched a beta subscription, which we opened up 
in May, so it's been about four months since we've really had five bucks a month. Yeah. And how many subscribers do you have? That's not information we're sharing right now. How's it going? It's going great. It's growing. (laughs) It's growing every day. I think in the growth is accelerating. What we've launched about a month ago is what we call the medium partner program. The basic mechanism of the subscription, not unlike the New York Times or New Yorker and many other publications is a, is a paywall. So some content on medium is behind that paywall. The majority is not, but, but so there's it's a, a garden of kind of cool stuff you get to. There's a garden of cool stuff. I like that description of yeah. it. Yeah. The vast majority of content on medium is still free, but so we're sort of transitioning into this world where more of it is behind the paywall. And so our latest step in that was to enable writers who and, and publications to self-publish behind our paywall. Right. And then we will pay them based on the engagement of their content. And the theory behind that is I'm very confident that people will pay for high quality content. I think what's going to be hard is for every publisher to build their own subscription, let alone every author. So this is a way for people who want to put in the work to do this type of of content to actually get paid with the economics of a subscription, but essentially we all work together to get that subscription to critical mass. Right. And so you've been working on this for almost two decades. Do you think it's possible for a publisher of, let's call it quality content, to have a viable business that's solely ad-based? No, not really. I hesitate to say it's not possible. There, there are people who, who do it now who will probably do it for a long time. In the world of publishing, I don't think there are any absolutes, especially for very niche publishers or for, you know, there's a lot of factors that play into it. Pretty much any model that you can think of will work for, for someone because publishing is diverse as the food industry. But the general trends will be that that the market will bifurcate and there will be a free content focused on mass distribution, advertising powered, low cost production, which generally but not always means low quality, but um, there's certain types of content you can produce at low cost and has mass appeal. And then there's higher production value, higher cost content, which I think will generally need to be paid for by a combination of consumer supported. I'm very confident there will be a market for high quality consumer su- supported content as well. Right. Do you think this is there's a, a parallel to be drawn between media or reading, for lack of a better word, and the music industry and the transition it's gone through? Because it's only in the last year that's actually revenues have gone up after Napster, which came out in 1999. Yes, absolutely. What's in, particularly interesting in music is that the content didn't really change, but convenience and packaging did and created incredible value proposition for consumers for 10 bucks a month, access to everything basically, and these, these incredible tools for discovery that is way better than anything you could imagine before. It's just sort of a no-brainer to pay for that, even though you could still go out and find music for free. What people say a lot about publishing is, well, people are used to getting it for free, so you'll never convince them to pay. I just think that's untrue. People will pay for things, and they demonstrate that in all kinds of markets, media and otherwise. People pay for higher quality, people pay for convenience, people pay for identity. That's demonstrated across the board. 
Right. Can we talk about claps? Sure. So the system is on medium. So if I write something, you guys introduce the clap icon next to it. And depending on how many people click that button would determine how much I get paid. Is that right? Roughly. Because when this came out, I saw lots of the snark army online came out in force. Yeah. I presume having been at Twitter so long, you were not surprised. Honestly, it caught me a bit off guard. The lack of even attempt to understand what we were doing. The knee-jerk, this is a stupid idea. Yeah. 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 I knew it was unusual. I knew it wouldn't be obvious. The degree to which people still misunderstand it surprised me a little bit. Um, And I think certainly we could have done a better job of explaining it. But what we want to do is we want to measure value. Value not according to us, but value according to the person consuming a piece of content. Right now on the web, the way value is measured is pure attention. How many people saw a thing? Clicks. Clicks and views. That is value to an advertiser. It's not value to the people clicking and viewing. In the best possible scenario, you could read someone's brain and say after they consume something, and if they looked at it and went away after three seconds because they realized it's clickbait or worthless, then it'd probably be no value or negative value. The web doesn't register that. If you saw an ad or a page view is registered, it's as much value as if you read something for 10 minutes and changed your view of the world. So that's obviously a terrible system and will not generate better stuff. A better system would be if you could ask them, was this good? How good was this? So was this good is actually a thing that we have on the internet. We've had for a few years. We have like buttons and we we have hearts and we have we have these feedback mechanisms that say was this good on medium the system we've had our equivalent of the like we call the recommend would you recommend that this is worth someone's time we've been studying this problem for a long time about what signals actually signify quality and so the recommend is a good one but in a sense it doesn't capture variability so so what we invented essentially is the the variable like Because you can do one clap or 100. You can do up to 50. There's actually a limit. And so the whole point is to say, how good was this? To do that in a way that didn't make people think about it too much and was a natural sort of reaction, it correlates with how much someone appreciates something. It's a source of data that we didn't otherwise have. Are you surprised at how broken the media has become or how much, how thoroughly the internet has broken the media model? I try not to be overly negative on it because it's disappointing because so much is possible that we haven't yet done. There's no golden heyday where all newspaper articles were correct and, and you know, <laughs> it should be better by now. I think we have, and that was a theme even before we were focusing on the business model that really motivated a lot of the, the initial ideas in Medium, which is you know what, we really haven't changed that much. And today with with machine learning, there's so much more that's possible to make this all better, but it's held back by this business model and distribution problem. And I guess that leads to kind of a different question, but related is that the medium right now, it's five bucks a month and you get to the end of every month and you just divvy up that pot. So that's temporary, where you're just gonna give all that money to content producers. Yeah. Is that a 
viable business model long term to be to actually then start you know taking your cut of that and will there be enough left over for people to actually make money we've done the math on this and we think it's it's pretty good we're actually giving more than the five dollars technically now because we're seeding the system but we feel good about that long term and subscription business if you can get to critical mass it can be a very healthy business I think what the system will allow for is the very best stuff to rise to the top and be be rewarded as well as for us to to have a business on top of that. And it's not it's not that different from other, you know, consumer media subscription businesses which have built some very big companies and right. gotten a lot of content creators paid very well. VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings so you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You talk about stuff rising to the top, but if you going back to the ad-based model, if you look at, say, Facebook, that's an ad-based model, and it's a hugely powerful, but it's it kind of creates um, imperfect results. If you talk about fake news and, and the kind of these filter bubbles. Why is it so hard to kind of make money? Is it the problem with the duopoly of Google and Facebook? There's a distinction that is important, I think, in talking about ad-based models in that there's ad-driven content and there's ad-driven distribution systems. In the latter, I would put Facebook, Google, Twitter. The ads that drive those systems are not funding content. They're funding those systems, which provide all kinds of services for people. The problem is actually ad-driven content. So it's the, the most blatant fake news, you know, some of it's ideologically driven, a lot of it is profit driven. It wouldn't exist if people couldn't make money by getting someone to click on those headlines, but you could say they're, they're complicit and they're part of the same system. But it, where it relates is if you're a publisher or a content creator 
and you choose to be driven by ads or if that's your model, you are competing with them because you are selling attention and they're selling attention and they are not paying to create content and they are have an incredibly efficient targeting and distribution method for attention. And so you're getting into a commodity business with the most massive, lowest cost producers in the world. And so you're probably in trouble. Speaking from a, having been in newspapers for 15 years, I can tell you firsthand. Yeah. I've been through many rounds of redundancies. Another aspect that I don't think is super well understood is the programmatic buying because ads alone could be a non-commodity business and they used to be more so. So a London newspaper, you had to, I want to buy these sophisticated readers who are based in London and that's not a commodity that you're competing with people all over the world on. And so you could charge a premium for accessing those people. It was natural to think that would apply online as well. So if you can build a, a great brand be by doing high quality content and then you can sell advertising at a premium because it's associated with your brand, then you're in less of a commodity business, which is true and a lot of people still do that. Programmatic buying is making that harder and harder. So people are buying less of the context that their ad is showing up in. They're just buying the eyeballs that, that show up. And if those- Programmatic ads are effectively bought by a algorithm. Exactly. And so the big brands just say agency X bias X amount of eyeballs. Yeah. Indiscriminate. You're more likely, I mean, you can buy them on any parameters that you want, including sites, but you're more likely to define the types of people that you want to target than you are going to say the place where I want to. So if you're some fancy magazine and you, you used to sell, well, those fancy magazine readers also use Facebook and Google and they're probably much cheaper. And occasionally they visit some you know cheap website and they're cheaper to, to buy over on the, those places than in your, your fancy magazine, then you're selling the same product that they are. In that broader context, just looking at Twitter for a second, is do you think there's any hope that, that it will ever become profitable? Twitter? Yeah. Um, I, as a board member, can't, comment on the future prospects of Twitter. Otherwise they'll throw you in jail. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, can you talk about why you guys ended up not selling it earlier this year? No, didn't, I mean, (laughs) then it it didn't, it, it didn't seem like the best, best outcome for the company. Right. And just this, uh, going back to the kind of the broader context online and Twitter's place in it and this idea of you know, the internet, it's an amplifier of everything. It's also an amplifier of trolls. Is that something that worries you? Yeah, I think the, historically we underinvested in the, the defense mechanisms, but the company is, is heavily invested in those mechanisms over the last 12 months. And I think there's substantial progress has been made. There's more to do. The whole industry is underestimated in those defense mechanisms, not entirely just about abuse, but misinformation. That's why the whole fake news thing happened. Yeah, you see what's happening now at Facebook. Exactly. Part of our ethos of, at Twitter was Twitter was about connecting people who didn't necessarily know people. Like It wasn't a social network. What people love about Twitter is connecting with people who they don't know. The architecture of the system, therefore, allows 
more interaction with strangers who may not be people you actually want yeah. to interact with. And so the architecture of the system caused it to be more likely place for bad actors to thrive, but... Well, especially with the possibility of being anonymous. Yes, right? exactly. Anonymity, again, while other systems may say, well, that's that's a feature we don't want to have. For Twitter, it's it's been an important factor for many use cases, including people in oppressive regimes who are using Twitter as a, as a way to coordinate and protests and all kinds of other things. It's a lot more complicated, I think, than other people. A lot of people, if they haven't thought about this deeply... Well, it's a very delicate line, right? It's a very yeah. delicate line, and it's complicated, and it's we can definitely do a better job. The solutions are often a lot thornier than people realize. Yeah, well, because to your point around anonymity, it kind of it allows certain ideas and movements to happen that wouldn't otherwise. Yep. Um, so do you think anonymity on Twitter is safe? You mean, are we, is it going to be? In other words, like Facebook, it's very hard to actually set up a kind of a fake or, or, or an, an, an alias, mm-hmm. if you will. Um, Twitter, it's pretty easy. Yeah. Um, I think pseudonymity, I'd, I'd, I don't know. I don't think I'm not aware of any plans to change the ability to be pseudonymous, but um, it's slightly different than anonymity because um, you can still build a reputation over time and you still need to earn attention. So anonymous systems like secret and yik yak and some of these other things that have grown very fastly have gone down in flames because they're not um, anonymity has much bigger challenges. It also has, has some benefits. I think the so far the the cons have far outweighed the pros of truly anonymous systems. Right, right. And is it? Do you have any sense of why? Um, and I don't know how answerable this is, but why uh, the big tech, pl- the the big platforms, Facebook, Twitter, etc., were kind of unprepared for that kind of the darker side and the the ability of those tools to actually just really amplify those voices i mean because having come from back from london this is a very distinct bubble Mm. from the rest of the world i don't know if that has something to do with it um i don't know either i i think um i don't know either (laughs) can't can't really say i think the the yeah, I don't know. Don't know. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but you think that there the, has the worm turned? That in terms of uh, attention to the yeah. to this issue, absolutely. Yeah. I, yeah, I think it's it's a vibrant conversation in Silicon Valley, and it's tied with all kinds of other things, like awareness in general of diversity issues, and equality issues, and abuse issues, both online and off, is much much higher even in the last year or two than than ever and i think that's a it's a super positive thing and it's going to take a while to create they're all systemic issues that are not easy to solve but i think the awareness is trending very positively and there a lot of these things are unignorable and the intensity of the conversation it's grown much faster than pro- the problem probably grew gradually. And then suddenly, especially after the election, everyone's talking about it. 
it does feel i mean i've only been here since january but there does seem to be a real kind of like light bulbs are going on all around around the valley Uh, silicon valley is still a place where people come and are generally very idealistic and i think more than other industries and i think a lot of the world media and otherwise is saying to silicon valley like these guys with all this power and money need to be responsible actors and because of this money power but Compared to many other industries, I think the intentions and the ability are very, very high. In my history in Silicon Valley in 20 years of working on these systems, haven't paid enough attention to many of the problematic aspects, but I do believe in the people and their their ability to solve problems. And so I'm optimistic still. Yeah, because it's, it's, it does seem like the, the kind of this tool was created and then kind of grew beyond everyone's imagination. And now there's a kind of uh-oh moment <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah but still combined if there wasn't the optimism we wouldn't have tried to do these things these things are incredibly hard to do it's not like oh we just tried some things and this thing happened i mean we there's incredible thought and effort that goes into building any of these systems and so i s- sort of look at it as the same problem as the internet as a whole it's like we we created these things we thought lots of good things would happen. Lots of good things happened. Also, some bad things happened. Let's look at those bad things and see how we can, what we can do next. I mean, in the grand scheme of things, all of this stuff is very immature and it's very early still. It's changing incredibly quickly. What was your worst day of work? <laughs> my worst day of work? Mm-hmm. Uh, my worst day of work was probably when I stepped down from Twitter. 2010. Yeah. Did you resign or were you forced out or what was the, why was that so bad? I was asked to resign. Yeah. So I did. Right. And at that time, Twitter was, it was still private, but you guys were kind of getting ready to go public. Yeah. It was private for a couple of years after that. And, uh, Dick Coslow took over as, was my CEO, took over as CEO, took a public and did a great job at that. But, uh, yeah, I was somewhat surprised by that move on my board but you and jack are on good terms clearly yeah we're good i'm still on the board they're doing good work yeah do you think facebook is good or bad influence generally (laughs) no comment (laughs) (laughs) and that's it for another episode i want to thank ev for carving out a bit of time and sharing some of his highs and lows over the years and it struck me after we spoke just how hard it is to make money online if you think about it twitter is still hugely loss making audio was a bust medium i'm gonna guess is still deeply in the red makes you wonder where it's all going maybe facebook and google are just gonna eat the world but we soldier on one podcast review at a time that's right you knew i wasn't going to Say goodbye without the usual plea, so please stop in at Apple Podcasts and give a review. It helps. And if you're not already, subscribe. You can find us on Apple, Android, TuneIn, Spotify, we're everywhere. And of course, I'm also in the Sunday Times every weekend in the newspaper online at thetimes.co.uk and on Twitter at Danny Fortson. Thanks again for listening. Talk to you next week. 
Next stop, Road Station. iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.